One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby, and Professor Steve Keen is with me. And today we look at the finance industry. Is it working for us? Or is it working for itself? Now, many might look at the big wages in the city of London and say, well, you know, they may be people working for themselves, particularly when you compare how much they're earning with the average wage in the UK, which is about £26,500. And those working 40 hours a week on the minimum wage, they take home just £13,000 a year, a long way behind those fat cat salaries in the city. But we do need banks. I mean, they've been around since the days of ancient Greece, possibly before, and without them, we'd all be struggling to barter, which doesn't work out well, does it really? If you don't want a chicken for that paint job you've done in someone's front room, we need money in the middle, and hence we need banks. So, Steve, I mean, we need them, but are they working for us? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is that the problem lies in the very word you've used to describe what we do with money, intermediary. Uh, We think money intermediates between us exchanging commodities, and that really puts the the spin on the exchange of physical goods rather than the exchange of little pieces of green paper. Uh, But... In reality, what capitalism is really about is little pieces of green paper. The irrelevance for them, or the, the, the far less important thing, is the, is the goods and services we're, we're popping around. And this is where the problem lies in many ways, because it then comes down to, well, we get the goods and services exchange if it suits the monetary system, and if the monetary system is working properly and hasn't clogged itself up. But, of course, we've now found in very painful detail back in 2008 that both of those preconditions can, can collapse on us, and when that does, the, the capacity to exchange those goods and services goes out the window. So the real problem lies in the fact that money is not an intermediary. It's actually the main game. And in fact, banks are not intermediaries themselves. They're money producers. And, is, and this is, is where the whole problem lies. Well, right. And does that mean that the people who are involved in that process, the banks and people working in the financial industry, are the people who are... Uh, you know, as you naturally would, looking after themselves. So they've got a, a different, you know, they've got an ulterior motive against this idea of acting as the intermediary. And so, you know, the financial system is looking after itself rather than looking after the, the wider um, the, the wider community. Well, it comes down to what, how they actually make a profit themselves because you know, the, the whole role is to make as much money as you can. And, uh, you know, I've forgotten who, uh, I think it was uh, Ted Wheelwright, a brilliant old... Uh, a uh, uh, progressive Australian uh, political economist and, and brilliant historian of economic thought, he once said the golden rule is who dies with the most gold wins. Well, at the moment, I think we've got a pretty good idea who that's going to be. Um, but that, that um, focus on just accumulation, as, as Marx himself said, accumulation is Moses and the prophets. Uh, that focus on accumulation is where the, the problems come from because we have to then ask ourselves, well, if, oh, if banks are actually money producers, how do they produce it? And the answer is they produce it by selling us debt. Now, that means they've got a, an innate desire to sell as much debt as they can possibly market our way. And that is why when you go to a bank, it's just like if you go to McDonald's, they ask you, would you like some fries with that? With a bank, they say, would you like a credit card with that? Or can we extend your loan limit, et cetera, et cetera? They're trying to sell you more debt because that's how they actually profit themselves. They then charge it. They, 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 they make money on the volume as well as the markup. And this is what mainstream economists miss. It isn't just the markup of difference between deposit rates and loan rates that their money's 
profit comes from. It's the volume that they generate. And that volume is what's given us the biggest debt bubble in history and therefore the constipation the financial sector is now caught up in, which is why the, why the goods and services economy is suffering what uh, mainstream economists called secular stagnation. So there's a, there's a real dilemma there. But the other, the other side of that dilemma is that as much as they produce too much debt, we actually want them to extend credit to people who don't have money and need it. Yeah, and they're the people who they're not going to give the money to because they see them as being the biggest risk. They're the entrepreneurs, exactly mm. right. The, if you, if you, the, the whole trouble is that it's very easy to, to produce more debt if you can convince the public that bricks and mortar are always a sure thing. So doesn't and, it... Uh, and, and therefore they end up producing the money for housing speculation rather than for uh, entrepreneurs. Right, so d- does this mean then that we need more regulation? I mean, I mean we... No. <laughs> well, I mean, but regulation, for example, saying, for example, you know, what you lend for, you know, perhaps we, there needs well, to be. Well, partly, partly that, partly that you do, because I mean, I, I, you can't regulate banks into good behaviour. Uh, you can hopefully penalise them out of out of bad behaviour, but trying to regulate them into good stuff. Uh, you have to change the structure itself. So one thing I've wanted to do, and I think you and I have discussed this before, is I want to limit the amount of money that can be lent for asset purchases. Yeah. I want to put a maximum level based on the income that you can anticipate that asset will earn. And that means that in, in buying a house, my, I call this a pretty, uh, the pill. If that used to be a fashion word, and kids actually used it to stop getting pregnant. They don't seem to do it these days. <laughs> Not that I've done detailed research. But um, <laughs> uh, that was the other property income limited leverage. So I'd set a, a maximum amount of money that could be lent against a property based on an estimate of its rental income. Right. And so for property like the one I'm in, for example, right now, uh, rents for £18,000 a year, then the maximum amount anybody could get to buy it as a, as a loan from a bank would be £180,000. Now, if you did that, I think you'd see a lot of lower house prices in London, and you'd also force banks to look for another avenue to create debt and to make profit. Uh, but that's where the other side comes in. You want to, want to, give, them, you want to give them a way of doing that that actually isn't as, as, you know, quite, they've got quite a good reason for being worried about the riskiness of lending to entrepreneurs because most entrepreneurs will fail. Right. You just said, uh, when I said, you know, should we regulate banks more? You said no, because uh, they'll always find a way around. And then you just give me an example of regulating a bank in terms of, uh, of what they might oh, yeah, do. I mean, what, what I'm talking about is, yeah, I mean, regulations in terms of things like the Basel III, you know, trying to weight uh, the proportion of assets that they hold. You know? yeah. And of course, Basel II, and this is quite uh, one of my favourite people, Bill White, who is research director of the um, Bank of International Settlements, and the only main, the only uh, person in a position of authority, you know, like in an organisation like the BIS or the OECD or the IMF or the World Bank, the only person there to warn of the crisis before it came. Bill, uh, uh, we were having a talk about Basel III at an INET conference once, and I'm, Bill and I were sitting next to each other, and indeed they were describing Basel III, and he, Bill went over to me and said, when Basel II came across my desk, my heart sank. In other words, he saw what they were trying to do is use regulations about uh, the, the risk weighting of various assets to try to control control bank lending. Of course, what they did was they gave 100% uh, you know, risk-free weighting effectively to housing. Mm. Well, that really helped, didn't it? Yeah. So that's that's what I'm going. That was my initial reaction to no regulation. What I, but what my the idea about things like the pill is that that sort of a, is beyond a regulation. It simply simply says you can't lend more than this amount of. Uh, it links income to it links the income of assets to the the price of assets. Right, and that's what's been missed out by all the regulations that have been formed so far, because these have been informed by a neoclassical vision of how the world operates. They actually believe that level of lending has no effect on asset prices.
Now, you know, I mean, pass around the, 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 the Kickapoo Georgius or the, or the uh, evil weed, that is so ridiculous. But that's the basis that's been behind all the regulations that have been done to boot. So it's not against, not saying I'm against regulations, I'm against regulations informed by a defunct economic theory. But how do we get loans that, uh, you know, th- that's a great example of how you, you, you make sure you don't have that asset bubble in, in housing. But how do you get loans that are for productive purposes? Because we still have the issue, don't we, that loans are going um, to go to who's going to pay the highest price for that loan rather than who's going to have the most productive use for the broader economy. Yeah, well, this is where uh, I actually I recommend people take a look at the uh, work by a guy called Andy McNally, a book called Detonator, D-E-B-T, Detonator, a very clever name. And Andy used to run a, a major um, boutique bank. He's now gone and formed a new company called Equitane. And Andy is um, he's someone who's realised over time by selling debt that, in fact, that's an incredibly non-creative way to create money. And what he's trying to do instead is to find a way that we can create uh, government bank money not by... Um, uh, by creating debt, but by creating equity. And that actually chimes with something that I've been arguing for about more than half a decade now. Another side of the regulations I'd like to see, I'd like to make it possible to have banks to extend a loan to an entrepreneur and rather than having a debt lean against the entrepreneur to have an equity stake in the business. So fundamentally blending venture capital and existing banking. Right. And then that way, uh, the, the whole idea of that, that case, that would give banks an incentive to lend for the capital gain they could get from the one in five or six entrepreneurs who actually succeeded. That sounds, a, that moment, sounds like a lot more funds. hard work than just lending the money out and then uh, going after them when exactly. they don't pay. Exactly, exactly. It's something that they force banks to work. I mean, one of my, one of my mates back in Sydney is, uh, is a guy who was a mining engineer who became a banker. Uh, advising banks on whether a particular mining project should go ahead or not. So that's a classic instance where you've got to really go and do your research and do the people here. Is the, is the gore ore of sufficient quality? What are the logistic costs in getting it from the hole in the ground to the, to the ocean? Uh, what do you think about the management capability? Do they have good engineers, et cetera, et cetera? That's a lot harder than saying, is there a property? Is there a house on this property? Can, you know, right. uh, whereabouts is it? What's, what's, what's the growth rate of that particular suburb's house prices? And that would force bankers to actually work for the money they make. Right. But, I mean, there's nothing stopping banks doing that now, is there? It's just the fact that they've chosen yeah, well, to take there, the easy road. There is, because it's the whole issue of loan versus equity. If you take a loan position in a, um, a major uh, venture capitalist like Dyson, uh, it might be somebody else who comes up with a vacuum cleaner that really sucks. <laughs> so um, that, that's the dilemma they face. You might back the guy with good technology and somebody else comes along and wins. Yeah. Uh, so in, in that case, the, the crapshoot side of being an entrepreneur can mean that if banks are actually trying to lend to that, they're going to lose money uh, and they're going to lose, like, you know, they're going to get their, they're not going to get their capital back. And of course, the whole, uh, the essential thing for a bank is to maintain positive equity. Uh, you and I, believe it or not, can operate for a while with negative equity. Firms, a lot of firms do all the time. But a bank simply can't do that. That's the definition of bankruptcy. So the danger is in lending entrepreneurs, they'll expose themselves to that possibility. And the only, that's why I say the, the way around it is that debt, when you lend 100 million pounds to somebody, that's all you've got as a charge against them, 100 million pounds. If you lend 100 million pounds and it goes with an equity stake at say 50% of the business, then if the business succeeds, then your 50% goes from worth 100 million to 1,000 million and you make up for the other ones that fail. So something that enables them to make money 
Yeah, the, the banks have to be profitable. <laughs> right. gonna, I'm, but, I'm highly critical of banks as they stand, but if, you, if they're not profitable, then goodbye capitalism. To get banks to that stage, though, uh, I mean, what has to change? Because, you know, I mean, can't they just do that? Can't they make that decision? Apart from the fact, you know, as we say, no, it's, it's hard work. they can't right now. Like, no, they can't right now because banks uh, effectively, uh, they, 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 I don't believe it's positive. When banks need a banking license to operate, and the banking license quite sensibly you know, is prescriptive about what, what they can do, the amount of capital they have to have and so on. Uh, and it would also be, of course, what is when you get a banking license, what does the license do? It licenses you to create loans. Yep. It doesn't license you to create equity. Right. So you okay. need to change the particular um, element of how a banking license is issued. Now we have, I mean, but doesn't this also create greater risk for those people who've got money stashed in those banks? So we've got this, you know, this whole question about whether yeah. investment and commercial banks, for example, should be um, should be separated out because of you know almost exactly that issue that if you yeah, uh, yeah. if you're making risky investments, uh, you're going to uh, hit the high street bank, and uh, that could hurt the poor. Well, in fact. We think about this the wrong way around, but, but yes, that's a genuine issue. We, what we tend to think is, well, you know, you put your deposit there and then your deposits are at risk. In fact, that's not the case at all because the banks don't lend your deposits. They create the money by creating a loan. I'm saying that you create the money by creating an, an equity position. But what the trouble is that if you allow the um, institutions that create money by uh, lending to entrepreneurs or even lending to businesses, uh, whether they take an equity position or a loan position, if you mingle that with people putting their deposit accounts in a bank for safekeeping to use for transactions, then if anything goes wrong with the money creation process, that screws up the people who are just there for the transactional process, and they mm. get sucked into the whole thing. So that's one of the best reasons to have the sort of system that the Japanese, I think, still have. And we used to have in the past as well, where there was a separate set of institutions, like in Japan, it's the postal, uh, the, the um, post office bank, uh, but a separate set of institutions which were just deposit takers. Yeah. And uh, and we had very strong limits. We used to call them building societies in Australia in that sense. Yeah. You could, same, you could, yeah. And they they same operated the with an account at another bank. So, in fact, the reason they couldn't create money was that they... Uh, they would have an account at a bank and they would lend that lend uh, that, that account up to somebody else. And when they lent, that particular fund would decline. Uh, and that was insulated from uh, being the, the credit creation system where the banks would create money and create loans at the same time. And then if their money creation process stuffed up, then your deposits became at risk as well. So we need to have, a again, go back to this structural change, go back to the days we had different types of financial institutions with different uh, responsibilities. But is it also a question of scale? I mean, we, you know, we, we had this belief, didn't we, before 2007, 2008, that the big banks, well, I'm sure you didn't, you know, but we had the expression used a lot, the, the, the banks are too big to fail. And then we saw that, well, no, even big banks can fail. Uh, and in fact, you know, it's because the, because of this belief, I, I think, within themselves that they, uh, you know, that they were almost uh, risk adverse because, because of their scale. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, and this is why, like, if you look at uh, Richard Werner's work, Richard uh, is a great champion of small banks. In fact, he's forming one in Southampton, or trying to form one down there. Uh, and he points all the time to the German banking system, which is much, much more smaller scale. The banks are much smaller and regionally distributed, and they actually end up knowing their local customers. So in that case, they can take a position in somebody because they think, you, we don't think you're going to fail. We think you, you know, we know your track record. You're like, I would like to be successful. We'll, we'll provide you the funds. So in that sense, they do actually do what banks are supposed to do in theory and lend to entrepreneurs. 
So that's because they're small enough that they're actually on the ground and they actually know who they're talking to. Yeah. Whereas you get to the scale of the banks like Commonwealth Bank in Australia and, uh, and Lloyd's over here and so on, all they can do is credit score. And if your credit score looks good, then they'll, um, they'll make, you the, um, um, the, you know, make you the loan to you and it can be a 20-second process. Well, that's really helpful. Uh, all that works, that only works on asset-based uh, lending. That's all you get out of it. And then, of course, we've also got the issue, you know, there's so many instruments that are developed by the finance industry to create more wealth, I guess, for those banks. Uh, and, and some of those are to do with trying to eliminate risk while creating extra revenue, like, for example, making loans and selling securitization against those loans, which, of course, was the big problem we had in 2007 and 2008. Why do we allow that thing, that sort of thing still to go on? Oh yeah, again, as to think of being uh, uh, believing in a, in, in a false theory, and this, the argument was when those things were created that uh, that diversifies the risk and therefore reduces it. You can't diversify the risk that the oil well is going to blow up. It will blow up or not independent of the financial system. And what actually happened was rather than diversifying those risks, could massively amplify them because people were taking bets on whether. Uh, an oil rig would blow up or not, and the bets were loaded and completely on on top of the original uh, uh, physical risk to create financial systemic risk. I think it's. I really recommend people taking a look at the Wolf on Wall Street uh, to see that that explained beautifully by an analogy uh, about people betting on the outcome of what's happening on a roulette table, and therefore a small loss on a roulette table becomes enough to wipe the casino out or everybody everybody in the casino out later. So they they should be banned. Um, this is not regulation to say just get rid of it. Do not let people securitize away loans. You create a loan and you're a bank, it remains on your books. And that would have made a huge change to the willingness of banks to take this crap on. Of course, it turned out to be absolutely crap, as we all know. So what we haven't talked about is how electronic trading has changed all of this as well. And, you know, there's been from time to time we hear people talking about the idea of a Robin Hood tax to try and tax every transaction, not only because it's a great way of getting money out of <laughs> tax money out of banks, but also hopefully it's going to uh, slow down the speed of uh, of trades and uh, and the speculation that uh, that is created by by this electronic means. Is that is that a good idea? Is that part of the problem as well? The speed of it. No, it, it certainly is a problem. Um, yeah. But it, 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 it's, you know, again, it's one of the sense of progress as well. You'd actually like this stuff to be uh, you know, more rapid and less uh, cumbersome than previous uh, ways of making exchanges. But then what you do is, in terms of stock markets, you get the capacity for front running. So you get institutions that, uh, you know, we all heard about high frequency trading. I don't think people actually realize just how incredible these things are, mm. uh, but they're simply effectively front running by using the speed of the technology. And I'll give you an idea of the speed of the technology. I was talking to somebody in this industry some time ago, and they mentioned that they were going across from optical fiber links to the uh, exchanges to uh, to radio, and I didn't react. And when they realized they didn't react, uh, one of the people who runs the organization replied, the speed of light is faster in air than it is in glass. Now, <laughs> that's, a, that's, okay, how, that's how important that, it is. Yeah, yeah, for that's sure. That's how important, and that's how insane it is. Right, and doesn't that mean then that it's it's quicker for you to lose the value of what it is you're trading against because you move to speculation rather than, uh, you know, like we talked about giving loans and the, you know, the idea that banks might have equity, uh, have some skin in the game because then they're going to be, you know, more choosy about who they lend to, but also they're going to get get the benefits from it. Uh, that's the idea of shares. Of course, as well. 
but we, but we, but we lose yeah. because of the speed of it all. We lose uh, the reality of what it is that we're actually bidding for. Yeah, I mean that's why Mark Keynes did a wonderful job of satirising the whole idea about liquidity in finance markets by saying that there's liquidity in finance markets, but there's not an actual production. So it's quite possible that a farmer will have shares in an oil company and shares in in a wheat company and can flip from one to the other depending on whether he or she expects the prices to do. But that doesn't mean the wheat farmer himself can flip from producing wheat to producing oil. Um, so we have a false, uh, is it a fetish for liquidity? And in fact, too much liquidity can be a problem. And Keynes was dead right about that again. So how much of this is fixed then by just saying, well, OK, let's cut the scale of banks. Let's introduce some sort of legislation that says you can't get too big. And, and maybe I think your other point was that maybe we also need to look at, uh, at the function of those banks as well. So we start to issue different types of licenses. So you can't be all things to all people. Yeah, and also I'm making an emerging venture capital, so banks do have a profitable business model. Um, and then, and then, as you say, we're breaking it down and having a, a more diversified eco-structure of banks than the monolithic stuff that people that in mainstream economics always ends up promoting mon- monolithic structures over diversified ones. We need diversification in finance, just like we use needed in actual actual economies. Right. Will that happen? <laughs> um, what will it take? Uh, it, it takes a financial crisis. It takes the system falling over and then remaining falling over and probably dipping back into failure once more. The 1930s, the major advantage the 1930s had over our, over our period now is that rather than when, what the now, now departed President Obama did of rescuing the banks, uh, what happened under Roosevelt was the banks were investigated when they had a bank holiday and they were basically massive numbers of them were shut down, uh, deposits were allocated to other banks, and there was a, a clean out of the system of a fairly dramatic scale. Of course, the Second World War came along in the aftermath and very much caused by the Great Depression when you look at the, the politics of the, and the economics of the, the whole process. And in that situation, bankers were completely cowed by the beginning of the, the, uh, the, second, the, end, the post-war period. And we had bankers providing working capital for corporations. That was the fundamental focus they had. Um, mm. I don't want to go through a set of cataclysms like that again, but we probably will have to before we actually end up reforming banking. Mm. Yeah, maybe it is the only way. Uh, well, uh, good to talk, Steve. Uh, we'll catch you again soon. Thank you, Matt. Okay, and look, next time, uh, talking about the impending financial crash, what do you do to protect yourself against it? I don't know how many times I've got an email telling me I should be buying gold. Is that part of the answer? Uh, we'll talk to Steve Keen uh, next time on the Debunking Economics podcast. You can find us, of course, at debunkingeconomics.com. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.